Open your Bibles. We're going to transition and uh, move right into the text, which, by the way, is, is, is in some ways very fitting. Nehemiah chapter 4 is where we're going to find ourselves this morning, and I want you to uh, open your Bible and follow along. I hope you have the Bible with you. We're going to uh, read the first six verses of Nehemiah chapter 4. It's been a little while since we're in Nehemiah because we had a couple of uh, several-week blip here where I didn't, uh, given we were not always meeting here, not everyone was able to meet, and we're doing things a little bit out of the ordinary, I chose to put a halt on Nehemiah. I don't like doing that because it, it ruins the continuity of teaching through a text. At the same time, I also don't like when I'm doing it, and many of you aren't able to, uh, to, to be here when I do it, so I, I thought I'm just going to uh, put a, a pause on it. If you will recall, the last thing we studied in Nehemiah was chapter 3, the entire chapter, which is the chapter that is about uh, when the wall is actually being rebuilt. All these people come, and it just lists all the names of the people that were joined in the work and began to build the wall and, and bring it up, as we're going to find out, and bring it up to, uh, in the process, bring it up to half of its height. Now, today we're going to find out that just as we had a few chapters ago when we began the study of Nehemiah, that as soon as God begins to do something, guess what? So does the enemy. The enemy begins to work immediately. Today we have an opportunity to read a text and study it and look at it for its historical value, like I've said this whole time. This is real history. This, these events actually happened. But we also get to learn what it's like and apply some things to what the opposition may look like that faces us. Or if we want to talk about the persecuted church, those that are uh, opposed to whatever God is doing in their land, in their homes, in their churches. Let's read together Nehemiah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, verse 4, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Verse 6. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. God, it's your text. You wrote it, and we want to honor it by allowing you to speak to us through it. Give me the words, and even as I don't say the things, uh, uh, or whatever it may come about, give, give us the, the, uh, the, the, teach us by your Holy Spirit, if, you, if I could put it that way, that we may learn and grow. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to jump in. There's about three main verses I'm going to highlight just to kind of help us work through the text. The first one, of course, is verse is one. It makes sense that when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall. So we, we spent an entire chapter and just listing all the people. And there's a, there's a big, long list of people that were working around the whole uh, uh, perimeter of the city, rebuilding the walls, restoring the gates, working diligently. We, we read that there were some that weren't working as hard as they should. And there were some that were working harder than we expected them to. But in the, immediately in the face of that, when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, Look at what it says about him. He was angry 
He was greatly enraged, which is, I guess, just a strengthened form of saying that he was angry. And he began to jeer at the Jews or to, or to speak at them or to, uh, to attempt to discourage them or to dissuade them or to stop the work or to say, I don't want this to go forward. And he did so publicly, right? It says that in the presence of his brothers and of the, uh, the army of Samaria, which that's a threat by itself, right? Because if he's, it's, you understand it's different, right? If I'm wanting to stir something up and I go find a group of people that are, you know, grandpas and grandmas and, and, and good Mennonite people without any, any weapons or any, any kind by, and I start telling them about how this isn't good and how I don't like this is happening, that's different than if I go over here and I find the people standing with their machine guns and their weapons, and there's this big burly-looking mob over here, and they're saying, hey, I really don't like what's happening over there, right? That's a totally different scenario. Because in one hand, I'm just voicing and my, my complaints, and probably nothing's going to come of that. On the other hand, here's people that can do something about it right? Like they can go and stop the work. There's a, there's a threat implied even where he's saying what he's saying. It's not just that he's going into his room and venting. He is doing it on purpose and he's showing that the opposition is going to rise up just like God's spirit is rising up in them to do the work. And he begins with this, and I love this because it teaches us so much what are these feeble Jews doing? You know, you know when, when he says it, when Sambalat says that, that's, that's not meant as a nice thing, right? Like it's meant, as, it's meant as, a, as, a, as putting them down. What are those feeble Jews doing? What do they think they're doing? Have you ever said that, by the way, about people? As you're kind of scoffing at what they're about to attempt? <laughs> what are they doing? What do they think they're doing? It's never going to work. But let me tell you something. One of the reasons that the opposition from the enemy is so effective is that there's almost always a little grain of truth in the lie that's being told. Right? It's so effective because there's a little bit of truth inside the lie that's being told. Well, picture this. These are people from exile, right? They, some of them have lived there. Some of them have traveled a long way. They're in the minority, and they're attempting a monumental task. So when he says, what are these feeble Jews doing? Is it not true that they're pretty feeble? The beauty of what we can discover in today's text, I think, part of the beauty, is that for us, it's good to recognize what parts of this is true and what parts are not true course, we can combat against the untrue parts. We can receive the true parts and go to the right source to find help. Is it not true that they were pretty feeble? Like, picture this scene. This is a little bit like David and Goliath. There's an army of Israel and there's an army of, of, uh, of uh, oh, it just went out of my head. The Philistines, thank you. Whew. Bad deal when, when I can't keep this. The Philistines and Goliath, their champion, comes out every day and he says, who's going to come fight me? And everybody tucks tail and runs because he's big. And he's mean, and he's going to squash you, right? Until David one day shows up and walks out there, a little young boy, and he's got stones and a sling. And Goliath, you remember, actually, by the way, Goliath had the same reaction that Sambalat did. You go back and look. Same reaction. He got angry, and he began to jeer. And he said, what is, what am I, a dog that you come at me with sticks and stones? Come on. Are you real about this? He, he's not happy about it. 
But isn't the same scenario? Isn't this kind of a David and Goliath kind of situation? Here's these feeble Jews. They really are feeble. They're trying to, they're trying to build. By the way, that's what makes it all the more fun, all the more sweet, all the more incredible when you remind yourself of things that God says. For example, in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 9, verse 8, sorry. He talks about this day that he's going to visit them. And then he says, on that day, look at the imagery he uses. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest, isn't it? fun how God uses the same words in different situations, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. What happened when David faced Goliath? Who was the victor? How did it turn out? Was it like the pundits would have called it, if I can use that phrase? Was it like what would have been expected? Or was it totally different because God was involved? On that day, I will make the feeblest among them, listen, listen, if you have at all with any sincerity been joining in the discussion we're having Sunday mornings here about the rebuilding that has to happen in our personal lives and in our family's lives and in our church's life and in our country's life, you probably feel much like they did back then. This seems like a monumental task and I feel pretty feeble. I'll tell you that about myself. I look at my own life and how long I've tried, how long I've tried to get myself to where I should be at and, and, and keep myself on the straight or narrow. Notice I'm using those words very intentionally, by the way. And I see how utterly I fail. And I feel really feeble and weak about it. And, I, and that's not to mention my family then. And I look at them and I think, how can I, how can I continually and, 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 and in a better way do what God asked me to do with my family? To lead them like I really ought to, to love my wife like I really ought to, to lead my children like I really ought to. And I feel really feeble. And it's at those moments where the enemy comes and he begins to say among his brothers in the army of Samaria, what are those feeble, what's that feeble Merlin think he's doing? Let me tell you this morning, I don't know, I called it the first step. It's really maybe not the first step, but the first step in fighting the battle to build what God wants to do inside of you is to read the Word of God, to be reminded, so that you can tell the difference between the lies that the enemy says and the truth that God says. If we learn anything from the situation of David and Goliath, and now we can add for us today the situation of the Jews rebuilding the wall and countless other situations in Scripture, if we can learn anything from those, it's that it doesn't matter what everyone else says, it matters what God says. Those lies that come with a little bit of truth that are so effective, they need to be seen in the light of Scripture so that we know what was the lie and what is the truth because it's the truth that will win, that will take the day, that will come out in the end. Let me remind you of a few things of truth this morning if you need this reminder. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Are you listening? Are you awake? Are you with me still? We do everything we can to fit in with the world Part of the theme we heard this morning. We do everything we can to gain the world's wisdom. We do everything we can to gain the respect of the world and, and, and have a voice at the table, so to speak. And I'm not, whatever, whatever you say all about all that thing. But let's not forget 
that the moments we feel like we don't know anything about it, that we're the weakest because we're being told that by everyone else around us, let's not forget that God said, I chose what is foolish in the world to be wise. And I chose what is weak in the world to be strong. Now, there's a real key reason why that's, he does that. It's because he wants to show himself strong and be the only one that will get the glory for what's, what happens when, when good things come about. That it's not because of my wisdom. It's not because of my strength. It's, in fact, the opposite. It's because of my foolishness and my weakness that God's wisdom and God's strength can come through. In fact, Paul took this in his second letter to the Corinthians to the extreme. He talked about his own weaknesses, and he said, when Jesus came and said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, Paul had the audacity to say that he will boast in his weaknesses. He will be glad for his infirmities and things that, that he struggles with because that's what allows God's power to be perfected in him and to work. These are the truths from God's word that we need to hear. By the way, maybe if I didn't say it clearly enough, I'm making a parallel. We're, 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 we're reading this and we're talking about it historically and we should do that. But we're making a parallel that as we want to rebuild things in our lives, we want to restore things. We want to make sure that we have the right restrictions in place. We have the right protections in place. That we have the right identity. Those are all things that walls do. We talked about that already. That we have the right identity as believers in Jesus Christ, as followers of Jesus Christ. That when we begin to do that, the opposition comes immediately. And that's probably one of the first things you'll hear. What do you think you're doing? How do you possibly think you can carry this, pull this off? That's why we need to be reminded of the truth that's in God's word. I wanted to look at these questions that Sanballat asks, and I want to categorize them for us as the types of opposition that we might face. I hope it's helpful for us. I think there's a couple of different ways that he is trying to cast doubt on the situation. There's workers working. They're, they're, being, they're working diligently, and progress is being made, and he doesn't like that. And so the enemy, in that case, Sambalat, but the real enemy is Satan, actually, because he's, he doesn't want to see God do anything good with his children or with anybody who's following him. And, and so the enemy comes and says, I want to cast doubt into this situation to make them think that it's not going to be possible. Or, well, we'll see what kinds of doubts. The first kind of doubt that I believe that he casts upon them is upon the builders themselves, which makes sense. They're the most ready target. Will they restore it for themselves, he asks. Are they going to restore it for themselves? Are they up to the task is really what Sambalat's asking. But there's actually something really interesting uh, that's, that's in this question. Uh, again, when you read the, when you read the, the Hebrew, uh, if any of you, maybe some of you know this already, when you read the Hebrew, it can be a little tough because there's a lot less words there than there are in the English. Like a lot of words are filled in. When you read a sentence like this, there's only like three words in there. And you kind of have to, fill in the rest of it. It's a question. But there's an interesting word there. When it says, will they restore it for themselves, that last part for themselves has, is, is actually a word that means to relinquish or to loosen something or to, to commit yourself to something. So it is a question of, are they going to be able to do it? But really the question, the, the root behind that is really the doubt that are they really going to go all in and, 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 and commit themselves to the Lord all the way? Which is a very pertinent question because the biggest thing that the people of Israel struggled with is they kept intermingling all the religions around them and said, yeah, we'll follow God, but we also want to bring in Baal. We also want to bring in Ashtoreth. We also want to, we also want to fit in with his. We want to bring this into. And it's not just the people of Israel, right? Because it's probably our biggest struggle too. 
Worship the Lord your God and worship him alone. But then we say, well, but I also want to rely on this. Also, if you want to take Kervin's uh, strain of thought this morning, I also want to rely on the political process that's, that's about to take place. I, I want to rely on my own strength. I want to rely on my family. I want to rely on, on whatever else. We have all these other things that we're going to pack in there with it. And the question here, the root question here is, will they really commit themselves to God or are they just going to go halfway? Again, these questions, these doubts are so effective because there's grains of truth in them, right? Because we have to recognize that's a place we have fallen down so many times. We hear great convicting sermons. We have great moments with God where His Spirit speaks to us. And then a few weeks later, the fire's kind of burned down and we're kind of like, well, yeah, but it's a lot easier just to kind of go through life and do my daily routines and do what I'm kind of doing what everyone else is doing and just kind of forget about it. Will they restore it for themselves? That is doubting the builders. But with the next one, he connects the two together, but he takes it, he ratchets it up quite a bit here because the second doubt is really a doubt of God. It doesn't come out quite that way. At least in the English we read it that way. It says, will they sacrifice is the question. Are they going to sacrifice? But I want, you, I want you to think of something carefully here. If you think of the historical context of the book of Nehemiah, something has already happened before this. So if I were to ask you whether they were having any kind of sacrifices of the temple at this point in history, what would your answer be? I see a few of you shaking your heads this way. A few of you I don't, maybe don't know. That's okay if you don't know. The answer is yes, they are having some temple sacrifices already. Remember back to the book of Ezra, remember the work of Zerubbabel, they rebuilt, they restored the altar and the temple, but they haven't finished the work. There are sacrifices happening. So when this question is asked, it's not a literal question like, are they going to sacrifice again? It's a question of, as they've been doing that, is God able to come and help them finish the task? See, the first question was, are they really going to commit to God? The second question is, is God able to, to honor what they're doing and come through? It doesn't come through the way the, the, the way the English is translated, but the way the Hebrew comes out, that's what they're asked. That's what, that's what the doubt is. That's what the question is. They might think that they can rise up to it. Even though I say they're feeble, they might think so. But can God, if I could put it this way, this isn't probably quite like, but can God meet them halfway? Can God pick up his end of the deal? There's all kinds of gods around. This is, this is uh, Sambalat talking. There's all kinds of gods around, and we have our own gods. Is God really able? Is he really going to be able to pick it up? If you're honest with yourself, by the way, I would suggest that that thought has probably crossed your mind at some point in your life. Even if I give myself totally to God, will God take it from there? Is God able? If I give him my sacrifices... Is he, can he follow through? Now I know, I know we're sitting in church. We're not supposed to have th thoughts like that. We're not supposed to have doubts like that. It's not, not kosher. It's not what we're really supposed to. But I would suggest to it it's better for us to be honest. And I'm guessing there's times you've thought that in your head. This, by the way, this question here is what we're going to see in their prayer. Why 
uh, Nehemiah can so certainly say that he's provoked God and not just them. He's not just, he's not just messing with them. He's messing with God. Well, let's go. Let's keep on going. The, the, the next uh, doubt that they're doubting is they're doubting the worthiness of what they're attempting. Listen to the question they ask. This is an interesting one. Will they finish up in a day? Now think about that question for a moment. Just, just like stop and think for a moment. Is there any expectation that they're going to do this all in one day? Is there any realistic even thought that they might even pretend to want to do it all in one day? So why the question? Are they, what are they, they're going to finish it up in a day or what? Behind that question is the doubt of the worthiness of the project. As if, as if, if it can't be done in a day or can't be done in a pretty timely manner, it's not worth it. You see, there's a casting of doubt about how long it's going to take, right? They're reminding them with this question. They're reminding them, how long is it going to take? This could take days. This could take weeks. This could take months. This could take years. Now, it's not going to take that long, right, the situation? But it could. But behind that question of how long it will take is really actually the root question there is, is that worth it? Is that worth it? Will it be worth it if you spend a week trying to get your life back in order? Or if you spend a month trying to get your family back to where you're protected and you have the right restrictions in place and your identity is right? Is it going to be worth it if you spend a year getting your church back to a place where it is faithful to the Bible and to the Holy Spirit? Will it even be worth it? Is, is that worth it? That's what's behind that question. I can tell you, again, we're sitting in church, every one of us, right? Oh, that's worth it. But listen, how often do you start something that God is doing in you, and when it doesn't happen in a week's time, you think, well, I'm done with that. I'm going to go do something else now. And the evidence of that, I could suggest to you, is probably in our enduring prayers, or the lack thereof. How when God doesn't move an answer in something that we think, well, I'm going to move on to something else now. I would venture to say many, many, many of us, if we were to be honest and say, if I'm looking at a multi-year project of getting this right, it's probably, it may not be worth it. Should we expect, much like them, they shouldn't expect to have that wall rebuilt in a day, right? Should we expect to have our life reoriented and right with God and everything taken care of as it should be in a day? Should we expect our family to be completely different overnight? Should we expect our church to have listened to the Holy Spirit and humbled themselves and confessed and ch made changes and said, we, this isn't right anymore, this is right, we should do this, we should not do this. Should we expect that to happen from one Sunday to the next Sunday? Should we? We're all just kind of sitting there. Should we? Is that, is that right of us to expect that? No. It's not going to happen like that. Does that mean it's not worth a worthy undertaking? Does that mean we shouldn't start? Does that mean we shouldn't attempt it? By no means. This is the question Sambalat is trying to get at them. He's trying to make them doubt that if you can't finish it up just like this, then it's not worth, worth it to start it. 
Might as well give it up now. And it's a lie from the enemy. Let's do one more question. Ultimately, in this question, is the doubt of the result. Look what he says. Will they revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Have you ever, in the course of the study so far of the book of Nehemiah, have you paused at any moment and, and tried to use your imagination and put yourself back in that day in the city of, of, of Jerusalem and just thought, what would I think if I were to look around at all the rubble laying around that's supposed to be a, a fence, a gate, that's, uh, this, the wood that's supposed to be a gate, everything that's burned, there's this heap of rubble. It ever stopped and, and thought, what would, I, what would I think, what would I feel if I were to look at that? How encouraged would I be? <laughs> Discouraged, right? What a monumental task. Is it even possible? Can I even do this? And this is the question Sambalat gets at. He says, let's say you give yourself wholly to God. Let's say God is even showing himself somewhat powerful and he comes and does some things. Let's say that, yeah, it takes some time, but if you decide it's worth it and you give all your effort. And then at the end, you have a wall with burned stones and you have gates that are kind of cobbled together. Is it even going to be the results you want? Is it even going to be the standard you're looking for? It's going to be way down here. It's going to be nothing. It's going to be worth nothing. All the hard work you've done, all the sacrificing you made, all the stuff you did, it's not even going to be the result you were looking for at the, at the beginning. You might as well stop. Right? That's the doubt that he's planting in their minds. That's the lie he's telling them. How foolish of you to think you're going to get really strong walls out of burned stones and gates that have been obliterated. All of these... All of this comes piling on, and here comes his little friend joining the fun, right? <laughs> ha. Yeah, they could try to build something, but you know what? If a fox would even go under that wall, a fox, they're not very big, right? Don't weigh a whole lot. They would go up on that wall, and it would break down. All of these are the kinds of things that we face in opposition when we make an effort and attempt to allow God to build what he wants to build in our personal lives, in our families, in our church, in our nation. It's going to be no different. These are the questions that are going to come flying at us. These are the doubts that are going to come, come insert themselves into our brains and we're going to hear them out loud. We're going to think them in our heads. The enemy's going to come pressing all around. He's going to heap all, all on top of us. It's why I love, there's a lot of reasons I love the Word of God, but one of the things, one of the reasons I love it is right here in this text we have today. There's, did you notice the transition from verse 3 to verse 4? Verse 3 is all this, all the, just continuing piling on of all these doubts, of all this, this opposition, all this taunting, all this jeering, all, all this weight getting piled on and piled on. And verse 4, without any more discussion, without any more, like, Let's analyze this. Let's figure out. Let's have a conference. Let's talk about what to do. Let's, let's, let's come up with a battle plan. Let's do all this. Without any more of that, without even any preface of any kind, Nehemiah simply cries out to God. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. We are being despised. We are being piled upon. God, you must hear us. You must come to our aid. 
Excuse me, sorry about that. You have to turn back their taunts onto their own heads. You have to take them to the place where we have experienced that we are captives in a land and being plundered. You have to do those things. God, these, you have to hear these things. It reminds me, by the way, I said the first step in fighting the battle to build is to know the Word of God, is to read the Word of God. The second step is right with it, right behind it, and that is to pray, is prayer. We have to know the truth of what God says, and we have to pray to ask Him to make that truth effective in us and to refute the lies that are out there around us. We're going to see next week, by the way, we're going to have the same title to our message, and we're going to see that there's going to be an ongoing battle here, and we're going to see a few other places how this, this pops up in our lives. But for, the, but for today, hear, O our God, for we are despised. There's a parallel passage, by the way, that, that I think almost fits so, I, so perfectly into this scenario, except it's in the New Testament. It's with an entirely different situation, and it is the exact same thing. Our quizzers should be well familiar with this. They've been studying it out of Acts chapter 4. Let me flip there. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 24. Uh, Peter and John were brought before the council. They were told they should no longer teach or speak at all in the name of Jesus. And they come back. And it says that when they heard it, when the group of believers heard that, that they were being threatened and that they could no longer, they were supposed to no longer speak in the name of Jesus or teach anything like that, listen to what that says. They lifted their voices together to God. This is verse 24 of Acts chapter 4. They lifted their voices together to God and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, and on the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, here's what he said, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Nehemiah would say, why is Sambalat raging? Why are the people plotting in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed. For truly, this is back in their context now, for truly they say, in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. All that's preface. Here's what I want to get to in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And it says, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Listen, friends, it's not the exact same words, but I can tell you it's the exact same situation. There's opposition, there's threats being made, there's doubts there's, there's words being hurled. There's a battle being fought. And the people of God turn to God and say, God, you have to hear. You have to look upon their threats. You have to deal with that. You have to take care of that. But give us the boldness to continue to do what you've asked us to do. It is no different today, church, Christian, brothers, sisters. It is no different today when the battle is enjoined to rebuild the walls in your life in your family, in your church, you must respond the same way. God, you have to hear those threats, whether they come from Satan, whether they come from people out here saying it. You have to hear those threats. You deal with that. Only give me the courage and the boldness and the strength to keep doing what you've asked me to do. By the way, if you're bothered by the words of the prayer of Nehemiah, as some of us with New Testament sensibilities might be. Notice what he says. 
He says, do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. That's pretty, that's pretty strong, right? I would encourage us, by the way, to choose to look at that not as a negative that he was asking God to refuse to forgive them, but to see that as a positive statement of faith and trust that Nehemiah has in how this really shakes out. It actually, it actually de demonstrates to us a very key principle of this whole battle. Nehemiah is recognizing that that fight, it's Sanballat, and I just told you it's really Satan behind him, but that that fight is not between the two people here. That fight is between Satan and God, and it's God's battle. Remember when God said, vengeance is his, he will repay? It's a principle that we hear in Scripture, and I will tell you, friends, is very difficult for us to work out in our lives. Because whenever someone does something that doesn't make you very happy, or slanders you, or says something untrue about you, or does something unkind to someone else, what do you and I want to do? We want to make them pay for it. But if we, in our theology, believe that ultimately every sin is first and foremost a sin against God, which it must be by necessity because it's God's rule they're violating, by the way, not ours. That's why it's theologically true. It's God's law they're violating, not ours, which means that's why it's a sin against God, first and foremost, not us. Are you there, church? Are you hearing? It's God's law they're violating, which means they've violated God. They've, they've disobeyed Him. They've sinned against Him, which is why it's His to repay, not ours. It's simply a statement where Nehemiah says, God, their actions they're doing, yes, they're affecting us, but they're really against you. you. They have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders, and you will have to take care of it. Now, if you think this is an Old Testament, New Testament thing, I would urge you to look at the words that Paul wrote to Timothy. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. This is 2 Timothy 4.14. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. That sounds a lot like, maybe not quite the language, but that sounds a lot like Nehemiah saying, God, don't cover their sin, don't blot them up. You're going to take care of it. Like, that's your job. It's not ours. Instead of us seeing that he's being unfair and unloving and unkind and saying, God, treat them badly, he's actually statement to Nehemiah saying, I won't take action to repay them. That's your job. You do it. You take care of it. That's what he's saying. That's what Paul said to Alexander, about Alexander. He did me great harm. God is going to repay him according to his deeds. So we have the battle being joined by the enemies. We have the people of God coming with their prayers. And then look at verse 6. We're going to end with this verse today. What do they do? And so we built the wall. And so we did what God asked us to do. There was fights. There was threats. There was rumblings. There was all kinds of implications of danger. We prayed and we built the wall. It says, by the way, and this is something I want to end with today because I think it's a very key thing that we have to, we have to get worked into our hearts and our lives and our mindsets. It says that they built the wall. They joined together about half its height for the people had a mind to work. Now, that's a very interesting phrase. I really wish they would not have translated it that way uh, necessarily because uh, we, we, make, we, we make great distinction in the English language between our minds and our hearts, Right? In fact, we often use that phrase, like you can know things up here, but you don't know them down here. Well, the Hebrew word here for the mind is actually lab, which is your heart. So it really should have, should, in my opinion, should read that people had a heart to work. 
the word actually refers to the decision-making center of who you are, which is why I think they translate mind. But they had a heart to work. It's used in many ways and many times in the Old Testament. But I want to illustrate a couple of them because they, they illustrate the readiness with which not just Nehemiah. This is important. I hope you're still listening. Not just Nehemiah was engaged in the battle to build, but the people themselves joined in. Because they were the ones that had the mind or the heart, the passion to do what God had asked them to do. It wasn't just Nehemiah saying, hey, come on, come back here and work. I know they're threatening, but I've prayed to God now. I'm going to keep working, and I hope you can join me too. They all heard the threats. They all heard the prayers. They probably joined in the prayers. And they came, and they continued to work. It's a little bit like when we look back. Let me just give you a couple of references. We look back at the book of uh, Chronicles. First Chronicles 29, and when they're building the temple, David uses this word several times as, as, he, is, uh, as he is reflecting on how they're, they're bringing things together for the, for the temple. He talks about his own heart, his own passion. And you, should, you have to read, I'm not going to read all that this morning for us. In First Chronicles 29, he's talking about all the things that he gave. And he's very clear, he says, I gave what I was supposed to give, but I gave even more because my heart wanted to. My passion was for God. And then he says, and not just me, but also of everyone else. Their hearts were. If you go all the way over, this is now in verse, um, well, I have the phrase up here, so maybe I should just read it off of there. This is in verse 17. In verse 17, he says, I'm way in the wrong section, that's why I can't read it here for you. Verse 17 of 1 Chronicles 29 says, In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered. There's the, there's the two connections there, the heart and the freely offered. I have freely offered all these things. And he goes on the rest of that verse to talk about how people joined in that same thing. And what you see in 1 Chronicles 29 is a recounting of how everyone gladly pitched in to help build the temple that Solomon was going to build then. They gave of themselves. This is the, this is the I'm trying to give you a picture of what is represented in these workers in Nehemiah's day. They freely gave themselves. If you want a New Testament picture that demonstrates that same heart of willing, passionate, I'm going to give myself all in. Whoa, I'm sorry. I don't know what happened there. But at least now you're awake. I did not plan that. I don't know if Dominic planned that to wake you all up, but I can't say I mind. You can look in the New Testament to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is a place where we also see the same heart the same mind to say, I am all in. I'm giving to God without reservation what, is my, what, what, what I think is mine. It's actually his. But I'm all in, and I'm going to do it no matter what it takes. If you read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul goes on and talks about these people of the churches of Macedonia and how they gave sacrificially. They didn't have that much, but they gave because they wanted, to, uh, wanted to, to, to help their brothers and sisters in need. And he says over and over again, he uses the same, this phrase a couple of times, talks about their hearts, and he says that, 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 that's, 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 that's how God meets or how God honors what you give. If you give according to what you have uh, and out of the generosity of your heart, then God counts that as righteousness. That's what God wants to see. I'm, I should have jotted down these verses here to, so I could just see them without floundering around up here. But, but they gave according to their means. They can testify beyond their means, he says. But he says, accordingly, in verse 6 of chapter 8, we urge Titus that as he had started, he should also complete among you this act of grace. Meaning, you should also give your, uh, your hearts in the same way. He's writing to the Corinthians here. If you go all the way over, the verse I was going to put up here is in chapter 9, verse 8. We all know this, but it, it, it's uh, verse 7, sorry. It's, it, we all know this, but it, it, it's a reminder to us. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart 
not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, this is talking about monetary gifts, and we always tend to just sort of apply this in monetary situations. But the reason I shared from the different examples this morning and brought it out of the, the book of Nehemiah for us is because this comes out in lots of ways, friends. It's not just when we give our money. It's the demonstration that our heart is fully in. Like that phrase, they had a mind to work. They had a heart to work. They were willing to give themselves despite a little danger, despite some time that it took, despite some effort it took, despite the, the amount of time it might take, despite the things they were looking that looked hopeless and the discouragement they might have to face. Despite all of that, they had a mind, they had a passion, their hearts, they wanted to give of themselves and, and give more than they thought was possible to give because they thought God was worth it. They thought the city of Jerusalem was worth it. They thought the people of God were worth it. It's that kind of attitude I want to bring to your attention today to say it cannot be, it begins with leaders. Now, today I didn't make any leadership points, but it begins with leaders. But it cannot be just leaders that are saying, hey, we're going to fight the battle. We're going to build. We're going we're gonna to fix things. We're going we're gonna to make our identity be correct. It has to be the people have to have a willing heart to engage and give generously and give more than they think they can. And I'm not just talking money. I'm talking of their of selves, of their time, of their talents, of, 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 of what, they, what they don't want to give up. They have to give more than what they think they can and say, it's worth it. The result will be what God wants it to be. God is able to meet my weakness and my feeble, my feeble strength I think I have. He's able to take that and make out of it what he has said will come out because it's his word that leads us, that, that tells us what he wants to do. And he will do it. Well, We've come to an end. We'll pick up some more of these verses, and we're going to continue to talk about the battle that was being fought. But uh, for today, let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Father, so many things that <laughs> I feel like I didn't get said correctly, didn't come out right, came out in maybe confusing ways, weren't structured correctly, whatever it may be. I want to apply my own sermon to myself and recognize that so many times when I'm up here, I finish and I think how feeble, how weak that was, how messed up that might have been. And God, I delight. I delight in my inability so that your ability might shine forth. That your all-encompassing ability, that whatever good might come out of my hastily spoken words that fall over them each other and... <laughs> come out in what about roundabout ways and whatever, things that make sense in my head but don't make sense when they come out, all, despite all that, that you are able to so faithfully and so ably and so wonderfully instruct us through your word and your Holy Spirit. And thanks for the reminder today of the opposition we face. Sometimes it's what it takes, God, for, we kind of forget that. It's what it takes for us to be reminded that we're in a battle. There's an opposition. There's one who opposes our soul, that opposes the work that you want to do in us. Teach us to be reminded of the truth from your word and to cry out to you, to depend upon you, to, to be like Nehemiah and the builders of Jerusalem. Oh, God, you have to hear, for we are being despised. You 
You take care of those threats, but in us, work the boldness to continue to do what you've asked us to do. Form in us the identity you want to form. Thank, thank you that you are faithful, that you are able, that you are willing, that you are powerful. Thank you that you are gentle with us. But thank you that you are also firm with us. We ask for both. We are in need of your grace. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Why don't you stand this morning? I'll give you.